You are listening to The Briefing, first broadcast on the 8th of December 2022 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to The Briefing, coming to you live from Studio One here at Midori House in London. I am Marcus Hippi. Coming up on today's programme, Iran has hanged a man in the first execution over recent anti-government unrest. We'll have the latest. Also ahead. We're stretched in our resources, that being time, that being people, that being funding. We hear from Karen Brinson-Bell, the state elections director for North Carolina on preparations for 2024's presidential contest. Plus, what to look forward to on stage this Christmas season. Theatre critic Matt Wolf joins us with which turkeys to avoid. All that right here on The Briefing with me, Markus Hippi. Iran says it has executed a prisoner convicted over the recent anti-government unrest. It's the first such death penalty carried out by Tehran and raises concerns that other detainees may also face the possibility of executions. The protests against Iran's morality police began in September and have expanded into one of the most serious challenges to Iran's regime since the Islamic Revolution in 1979. Joining me now from Jen- Saudi Arabia is Arash Azizi, a doctoral candidate in history at New York University, where he researches the history of socialist and Islamist movements in Iran and the Arab world. Welcome to the program. Arash, did you know to expect news like this, that protesters would possibly face death penalties? 100%. It was 100% expected. And I have to say, you know, in the last few weeks, there was a report that wasn't very accurate about, you know, thousands of people sentenced to death. Um, but what we said immediately was that, yes, the news wasn't accurate, but it is possible and it's very likely that some people will be executed. Um, and unfortunately, not enough attention was paid to that. So it's not surprising and it won't be the last. Um, on, you know, unless we try very hard to, to prevent further execution. How much is known about this protester in, in question? What exactly had they done? Um, well, the... The version of events given by the government can never be trusted. And when I say can never be trusted, it's not just in its details. They make up entire things. Um, you know, they make up entire stories. They, um, a lot of us who work in the media have heard, like, really tall tales made about our own family. So in this case, they say he was accused of blocking the road, um, which can really mean anything. Um, uh, you know, there, there, there are a lot of protests going on, so whatever blocking the road means, so that sort of, the kind of um, the kind of um, uh, sentence they've given him, and also um, it's the the the, the um, charge of muharebe, which means uh, militancy, um, sort of militancy against uh, against the government, sort of really religious uh, charge, is one that has been used in several cases, and, and we're very worried they could be used, um, you know, even you know even beyond that. And the Supreme Court, by the way, also had approved this uh, execution, so they, it shows how. How much do you think this this news story reveals about how concerned Tehran is about the ongoing unrest? Um, they're obviously very concerned. Um, there's no doubt about it that um, they really fe- they feel that their rule is threatened, um, which it is. Um, of course, not in a short-term basis, but this is the 
this is the most uh, the most vast um, uh, movement the Iranian regime has faced since 1979. I think it's very easy to say that it is definitely the largest since 2009, but it is most radical in its demands and the most you know it, it has support all across Iranian society, in, in both geographically and across all sectors of Iranian society. So um, the fact that they would um, resort to such brutal methods to put it down um, is quite telling, frankly. And we should also be prepared for much worse. Exactly. Arash, you are joining us from Saudi Arabia. How much can you tell us about the international reaction to this execution so far? And how, how is Saudi Arabia viewing this, this execution and the unrest in Iran? I should add that I'm just on a trip uh, to a film festival in Saudi Arabia very shortly, and I'll go back to the U.S. tomorrow, so I'm not really affiliated um, in, in any way with this country I'm just visiting. But um, the, you know, the Iranian regime has done a job of uh, making the entire world opposed uh, to it. In fact, it's one of the most failure of, um, you know, one of its obvious failures is that Iran, a country that traditionally used to have good relations with, you know, with the entire world, with both during the Cold War, Iran often had good relations with both the Soviet Union and the U.S., with China, with all of our neighbors. Today, it's sort of viewed with enmity by much of the countries in the region, including Saudi Arabia and also, um, you know, countries in Europe. And, of course, they tried to cause the up to Russia and China, but even Russia and China effectively, as you know, the Chinese president was in Saudi Arabia in a very lavish visit a couple of days ago. So even, they, even the friendship with Russia and China has not really been able to get much for Iran. So the diplomatic isolation of the regime is one more sign of its crisis. You've said already that you expect that there may be more death penalties coming up in the future. What is your prediction? How, how bad can all this get in Iran? Um, to be honest, there are different scenarios. From the very beginning, I've said something that you know, we are not prepared really for how bad it can be. The Iranian regime already, the way it is, is um, so it's quite, so it's, it's one of the worst uh, human rights offenders in the world, one of the most brutal regimes in the world, but it can be much more brutal. It can go back to what it did in the 1980s, which was kill hundreds, thousands of people, execute them in very large numbers. And what would the world do then? Um, I mean, imagine if they would start killing uh, journalists, filmmakers, all these people, 18,000 people are in their hands, um, uh, you know, those who are arrested. So I am very much think a possibility that Iran would just harden up, go to a sort of 1980s and further make itself more to like a North Korea, as many of us have feared before. Um, it's a very real possibility. And I think we should, I don't think any of us are really ready for that in any way. This is what I've been, keep telling anybody who I meet in the last few weeks, you're not ready for it. Um, you know, a scenario of going back to the 1980s would be something really much different from even the brutalities that we see today. That's a very, very dark scenario you are predicting. Do you think this process can still achieve something? There is a revolutionary movement in Iran. Um, when you are in a revolutionary movement like this, you're condemned to be hopeful. Um, the super brave men and women of Iran um, have you know have shown that they're hopeful but by the energy and but by, by the fact that they're putting all their lives to this just imagine whenever i know that um i know that the uh, women of iran were just called heroes of the year by the time magazine um but just remember um if you want to sort of picture that just remember this a student this girl who showed up yesterday um in the student's day faced a pro-regime 
uh, former MP and mayor of Tehran, took her hijab off and started attacking the policies of this regime. I mean, what kind of, you know, superhuman courage would one have to do something like that? People who do that obviously have hope that they can achieve success. And yes, they can. But we will be lying to ourselves if we say it's easy or it's a short path. Um, it's very likely that this will be, um, you know, we are in it for quite a long haul. Although, of course, with all my heart, I wish for it to be as peaceful and as short as possible and we can get rid of this regime as many of us have been fighting for for a very long time. Do you think the regime will, have, will stay in power? No, I think the regime is condemned um, to the dustbin of history and that we do see its downfall. I have, I have absolute faith. You know, I'm, 30, I'm going to be 35 soon. I have no doubt that people of my generation will see a free Iran, will be able to go back to it. Um, so I have no doubt about that. But I also, as I said, I have no illusion that the path there should be anything like easy um, or short. Um, but I have no doubt that this regime is fundamentally at odds with the basic wishes and aspirations of the Iranian people. And a few scenarios where it can go, um, you know, it won't be replaced by a beautiful, wonderful democracy immediately. There are a few scenarios where it can go, but I have no doubt that it will go. It will not succeed to, um, you know, it, it will not uh, survive for hundreds of years as, as its leaders think. Thank you for your thoughts, Arash. That was Arash Azizi from New York University joining us from Jeddah. It's 12.10 here in London. Now here is Monica Simasur with the day's other news headlines. Thanks, Marcus. Peru has a female president for the first time after ex-president Pedro Castillo was impeached hours after he tried to dissolve parliament. Dina Boluarte, the country's former vice president, was sworn into the top job at Congress to become Peru's sixth president in under five years. Japan's lower house has passed a bill that would regulate donations to religious entities, including the controversial group formerly known as the Unification Church. The Prime Minister, Fumio Kishida, has seen his approval ratings plummet since widespread ties between his Liberal Democratic Party and the church were exposed in the wake of the assassination this summer of Japan's former leader Shinzo Abe. And a strong earthquake has rocked Indonesia's capital and other parts of the main island Java, but there have been no reports of casualties or serious damage. Evacuations took place in some of Jakarta's high-rises after a 5.8 magnitude shook the buildings for several seconds this morning. Those are the day's headlines. Back to you, Marcus. Thank you very much, Emma. Georgia's Senate runoff in the United States this week closed a chapter on the 2022 congressional midterm elections, but officials are already preparing for 2024's presidential contest. Monaco's Washington correspondent Chris Jemek attended a summit of local and state election officials in the U.S. Capitol this week and spoke with Karen Brinson-Bell, the state elections director for North Carolina. They began by discussing what is needed to keep elections running smoothly. There are a number of things, and I think, you know, I could probably give a big umbrella by using the term resources. We're stretched in our resources, that being time, that being people, that being funding. We had an infusion of funds that went towards COVID and making sure that our voting places were safe and our workers were safe from a health standpoint. But there's still, you know, that work's not done. And there's other funds that we need consistently to combat cybersecurity and the fact that you know when things go smoothly often that 
registers to people is, well, you don't need any additional funding. It went smoothly because we had the funding and in order to keep it going, we've got to continue that. You know, resources for people, the precinct officials, the poll workers, you know, we had an outpouring of folks who were willing to serve during the 2020 pandemic because they didn't want their mother or uncle or you know friend or relative who was in that vulnerable population because of their age. You know, they wanted to give them an opportunity to step away. And so, so many um, younger individuals stepped up. But after we faced such threats towards you know our processes and attacks on election administrators and election officials, you know, a lot of people pulled back. Ultimately, we were successful in getting the number of workers that we needed in North Carolina for 2022, but that has to be sustained as well. And we have to create an environment that encourages them to come back and to continue to give to their community. What is the morale like among election officials, among poll workers? Are they coming back next time or have they been sort of dissuaded by the negative attention that they've been receiving? So we didn't have an overwhelming amount of intimidation efforts towards our election officials or poll workers in 2022, but we did have that. We had a few situations where some of our workers were followed from the voting site actually to their home by someone suspect of what they were doing. And there was nothing nefarious there. There was there was nothing to be concerned about. It was typical procedures. So what we've tried to do is make sure that people know that you can't intimidate or harass election officials in that manner. And so we have to educate the public of what's permitted and what's not permitted and help them know that that's just not okay in terms of behavior. But you run the risk of does that put fear in those very people that you want serving? Would they be subject to that? And thus far, we seem to be very successful. I think when you have a passion for this work, when you realize that you're contributing to the most fundamental right that we have as U.S. citizens, and that's the right to vote, that really inspires you. And a lot of people they stick it out because they're that committed. But we'll see. We are already well underway for our 2024 preparations. We're less than a year out from when we will file candidates for our primary. So we are holding planning sessions this very week of what do we expect? What do we need to get accomplished? And we'll have to have resources in order to achieve that if for no other reason, but if we replicate exactly what we did in 2020, where we had around a 75% turnout, that is a massive amount of manpower, of funding that'll be needed, and a lot of preparation just to be ready. What does it feel like for you to be put in this situation of being a communicator, having to speak up for the process, perhaps in a manner that you didn't have to do before. I mean, ideally, election workers, the administration of elections is all in the background. I think because I've worked at the local, state, and national level uh, in elections administration, it's given me experience that I can convey 
and telling our story is really what seems to break through all the myths and disinformation and the rhetoric. Once people actually realize that you're a real life human being who cares about what happens and that all that goes into preparing for elections, all the checks and balances and all the bipartisan and nonpartisan efforts really has registered and resonated with our voters. It's sometimes very surreal to even have that kind of responsibility and then it's very humbling to be the state elections director in North Carolina is I doubt there will ever be any honor greater. I care about these people. We call ourselves an elections family. And so I want to make sure that people understand that the person behind this tagline of elections, they miss birthdays. They miss being at the bedside of a family member who's hospitalized. They miss significant things because they are so dedicated to their work that that comes first, that we recognize the deadlines that we have. You don't miss an election. <laughs> it's going to happen. You've got to figure out how to proceed and the sacrifices that my colleagues make to do that. We just try to tell that story. And so when I do interviews or when I'm doing a press conference or when I'm just interacting one-on-one -on -one with a voter, I just try to tell them you know, exactly how it is. And if that means sharing my personal experiences and the reasons why I I feel so motivated to be in this profession, then I try to do so and I try to encourage those I work with to share that too, because that seems to make the difference. Is there one particular story when you say personal experience that comes to mind from this election? You know, it, it's really easy. Sometimes the most negative messaging is what you hear because it's might be the loudest. It doesn't mean it's the largest, it just may be the loudest. And so it's trying to step back and recognize that and take those moments when you receive a card from, there was a lady from Lillington, North Carolina. I shared this note during our state board canvas meeting when we certified the election, where she was just thanking us for our efforts and putting out our judicial voter guide and how helpful it was. And you know the fact that she even took the time to recognize us for that effort and to thank us that's the moment that keeps you going. And then, you know, I always go back to, there are two moments that I, I just have never been able to forget two particular voters. And I'll share one of those stories. <laughs> but one of those was when we got new voting equipment in North Carolina in 2006. That was part of how I came to work in elections was to train on that voting equipment. And so I was at a festival where we were demonstrating the voting equipment and we you know, were also making sure that that equipment was accessible, you know, ADA compliant. And so this gentleman in a wheelchair came by our display and he rolled up to that piece of voting equipment and he touched his selections for this, you know, demo fun type election that we had. And, and I saw tears in his eyes because what he came to tell me was that he had never been able to do that for himself. He had always had to ask for assistance and someone else to mark his ballot because the voting equipment just was not accessible for a wheelchair. And, and his wife was kind of funny. She was like, you don't need to worry about that. I'll help you. And he goes, not anymore. <laughs> so it was kind of comical at the same time. We had a good laugh over it. But to see this you know, elderly man, wheelchair bound, become so emotional 
and to thank me. And I had, there was much bigger players in, in that you know, happening than, than me, but to stand there and to be part of that moment with him was just, I've never forgotten. And that was over 16 years ago. And I think of him every day. I don't know his name, but I know that that's, that's who I work for. That was Karen Brinson Bell in conversation with our Washington correspondent, Chris Jemmock. You are listening to The Briefing on Monocle 24. Enhance the year to come and treat yourself or someone special with a Monocle subscription this festive season. To round out our 15th anniversary year, for a limited time only, there's 15% off with code RADIO15. It's almost 12.21 here in London, 7.21 a.m. in New York City. We're going to get a roundup of theatre news now and what we should look forward to this Christmas season. Matt Wolf, theatre critic at the International New York Times, joins me in the studio here in London. Good to have you here. Um, It's such a busy Christmas season in London now. Yes, this year as opposed to last year. Last year there were loads and loads of shows planned and about 90% of them didn't happen because of COVID. This year everything is happening. I have five openings in a row this week and six openings in a row next week. Now, how would you describe the quality of, of theatre you've seen so far? Well, it, it's been a bit of a rough ride this week, I have to say. Uh, one of the shows that opened this week was a show that was supposed to open last year, uh, Hex, the musical at the National Theatre, uh, written and directed by Rufus Norris, who runs the National with his wife, Tanya Ronder, who's a playwright. Uh, last year, it, it never opened because of COVID. They've had a year to work on it, and it still isn't right. I saw it last last year uh, without being able to review it. And this year, it it doesn't work, but for different reasons. It's been largely recast. Some of the recasting isn't good. But it's essentially a retelling of the Sleeping Beauty story about a bedraggled, uh, sort of rather soiled fairy who issues the hex of the title, then regrets it. Then there's a baby-eating ogress who takes the stage in the second half. Uh-huh. Uh, she and our sort of anti-heroine have a kind of climactic face-off. And the whole thing is is a real jumble. It's not quite sure who it's for, what it's supposed to serve, and it's largely incoherent. It doesn't make any sense whatsoever. What about Kerry Jackson in The Dorfman? Any better? Uh, no, arguably worse. Uh, that's a new play by April DeAngelis, a writer I've admired greatly in the past at theatres like the Royal Court. This is She tries something ambitious in this. She wants to write the sort of character who's very different from her. So she's written about somebody who voted for Brexit, who is politically uh, not attuned to April. It's set in Walthamstow, uh, East London, where April lives. And uh, Faye Ripley, the television actress from Cold Feet plays Carrie Jackson. She opens a Spanish tapas bar, which doesn't seem remotely plausible. And it's basically about the misadventures that beset her once she opens this tapas bar called El Barco. Staying with the National Theatre, by the way, there's one more play. I understand you liked this a bit better. Othello in the Littleton. This this was very good. Uh, this is the first uh, Othello ever at the National, directed by uh, a black director, Clint Dyer, who's an artistic associate there, uh, invaluably so. And it's very, very well done. It's quite high concept. There's a chorus in the play known as The System, which isn't usually in the play. But Giles Torreira and Paul Hilton play Othello and Iago, and they really do knock it out of the park. Let's talk about what's happening in other parts of 
London than Hampstead Theatre. Well, that's my local. I live in northwest London, very near the Hampstead. They've been having a rough time of late. They lost 100% of their Arts Council funding, and that, of course, is going to have a huge effect, particularly on a theatre that's devoted to new writing, because new writing is tricky, as we mm-hmm. see with Hex and Carrie Jackson, and it needs the sort of support you get at the National. So their artistic director, Roxana Silbert, has uh, stepped down. She's announced her resignation. And that seems a bit of a shame. Is she falling on her sword to protect the theatre? I don't know. I don't know the ins and outs. But one wonders how the Hampstead will see another year, quite literally another year, without 700,000 plus uh, in support from ACE, Arts Council of England. It's a real issue facing the arts sector in, in London in particular at the moment, it seems. But a famous institution in, in London, Shakespeare's Globe, there is a uh, play, Henry V. That's meant to be quite radical. Very radical. Uh, the uh, whole text has been rejigged. Large bits have been cut. They've added bits from Henry IV, Part Two, which precedes Henry V, of course, in the lineup of history plays. Let's put it this way, Marcus. If Vladimir Putin were <laughs> airlifted into the middle of Henry V, you might have this production. So whereas in the play, normally uh, Henry annexes France, here you can't help but think of Russia and Ukraine, and those sorts of resonances are present throughout. It's risky and bold, and I liked it very much. Something different. Well, just finally, Matt, I know you'll be heading to New York for, for Christmas soon. I'm wondering if you compare what's happening in London to what's happening in New York. What's your mood? Is, is New York doing better at the moment? How is the arts sector surviving there? I think actually London is doing better. People are going more. Uh, the appetite seems greater. Things are surviving for longer. New York is still precarious. New York is still finding its fo- footing, and I hope that will come back in 2023. Absolutely. Matt Wolf. thank you very much for joining us today. You are with The Briefing. And finally on today's programme, Fernando Augusto Pacheco is back with his World Cup countdown. Fernando, welcome to the programme. It's it's a very exciting day. It's time for semi-finals today. Semi-finals, indeed. It's been a long journey, Marcus. So basically, I selected uh, a winning country from each of the eight groups. And of course... A reminder to our listeners, we're not talking here about football, but about music. So it's going to be an interesting one. And from those eight tracks that we're about to listen, only four will go to the big final next week. There may be some listeners who don't remember which country was the winner of Group A, so it's worth reminding them it was obviously the Netherlands. Absolutely. The Netherlands was fantastic last time. Let's see what they have on offer. In fact, a band that was number one at the time, they're back, but with a different song. The band, it's called Gold Band. It's a love sexy electro group but they have the help of Man. she is a very famous uh, Dutch singer the winner of season 6 of The Voice of Holland they have this track it's called Sticken which means secretly shall we have a listen let's do It's a nice track. It's a lovely track. I think I love the beats. Uh, and I think I became a big fan of Gold Band. They might be added to the Monaco 24 playlist. That's all I can say, Marcus. Oh, dear. Well, we continue with the winner from Group B, which is an interesting one. We are talking about Iran. Yeah, the Iranian charts have been quite interesting uh, to look at because so many of the artists, they, they, they are political in their own way. Uh, lots of them, they are helping with the protests uh, after the death of Masa Amini as well. And I think Amir Tatalu, 
He is indeed one of those. I think he had to move out of the country. He's been arrested quite a few times as well. And he's, uh, you know, one of the big names of the Iranian hip-hop scene. And this is his track, which translated, I believe, is something like this. I was not the first, but the last. Let's have a listen by Amir Tatalu. Wow, I'm not quite sure what Amir is singing about over there, but that was quite an intense and interesting track. Very, very intense. And, and, and good that those artists, you know, they are being political and doing their part as much as they can, because music has that power, Marcus. Let's then continue to almost your neck of the woods. We continue to Latin America, to Argentina. That country was the winner of Group C. Absolutely. See, I'm not uh, biased at all. Otherwise, I wouldn't have picked Argentina. I'm joking for our Argentinian listeners. But I think this track is very fun. She's the queen of the Argentinian hip-hop scene. I say hip-hop, but I think her song is quite cumbia as well. You know, there's some, uh, you know, a local uh, rhythm from Latin America. I think it's fun. Great to see as well more kind of female rappers in the country. This is La Joaquí with Dos Besitos. Let's have a listen. Well, you are doing your little dance moves there, yes. subtly. It's fun. I think it's fun. Even, even, even the video for the track was in a kind of a, a theme park as mm-hmm. well. I think it's energetic. It's very good song from Argentina. Well, last week already, Fernando, I was asking if you're being unbiased over here, because obviously some of these countries are close to you, so and, and you were guaranteeing that this is totally neutral, unbiased. Well, I know the next country we're talking about has got a special place in your heart, because that song created a track you you consider of one of the greatest masterpieces the humankind has come up with, which is Barbie Girl. We're talking about Aqua, oh yes. Gosh. So we're talking about Denmark, and this next song is from Denmark. So because you hit the spot. I think Barbie Girl is such an icon. I do love Aqua indeed. Thanks, thanks for reminding. Makes me feel emotional on air, in fact. Mm. I wonder, obviously, <laughs> the next song we're hearing that's from Denmark can't be as good, but I'm wondering if it gets anywhere close. It's a complete Completely different vibe, in fact. You know, Christmas songs are dominating the Danish charts already. I mean, I know it's still a little bit early, but this track, I think it's only in Denmark. I mean, who who cares about Mariah Carey over there? This song is by Burhan G and Frida Brigman, and the song is called Tinker. I'll explain to you where this song came out, but let's have a listen to the song. Oh, it's nice. It's nice sweet. and Christmassy. And it's nice that it's quite local as well. So Tinker is a TV character. There, there will be a new series on Danish TV called Tinker's Christmas Adventure. She loves wearing an elf hat. I don't know exactly the whole story about Tinker, but this song's not necessarily new, but it comes back to the Danish charts every Christmas season as well. So it's quite nice. A nice local story uh, there uh, with Denmark. I very much like that. And I, I know that the next country we're talking about now, there's been some excitement about this, this 
this artist are we hearing from Germany next Germany next and the song remains a number one it's by Peter Fox uh, a very interesting character he's he was quite big in the German dancehall scene he was part of a band called seed uh, as well which is kind of reggae dancehall but his solo work has been doing very well and he likes to mix genres this track where he's listening now he, he gets some elements of a map piano from South Africa it's a little bit political as well but something you can dance to this is Peter Fox featuring Ines with Zukunft Pink, Future Pink. Alles good. I quite liked that one actually. Alles good indeed. I love it. I think it's quite uh, interesting. Zukunft Pink. Yes. So the Germans are not yet into the Christmas songs like the Danes, at least at the moment. Excellent. Excellent. I really enjoyed that. I wonder if Morocco is going to be better though. Morocco is well known for quite a lot of melodic rap. And Mochi, he's one of the, you know, one of the biggest rappers at the moment in Morocco. This is a very gentle track, but still a little bit hip hop. Talet Lagiba by Mochi. Let's have a listen. I mean, it's it's an interesting track, and 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 I like this idea of this melodic rap because it feels to me like a ballad uh, with some elements of hip hop. So yeah, a good entry from Morocco. It feels like it feels like a shorter time ago, but last week we actually covered groups G and H, and and we are talking about those winning countries now. So the winner of Group G was Cameroon. Cameroon. It's a little recap, and I remember you actually enjoyed this track, Marcus. It's just very happy, and it, it is about the World Cup. See, we even have some World Cup songs here on the playlist. It's by a Cameroonian singer, Chris M, and the song's called Shaka Sachange. Let's have a listen. I still enjoy that track, but now we have to move on because we have a limited amount of minutes left and we have quite a lot still to do. So there's one song left before you declare the four winners from this round. But the last group winner from Group H is South Korea. South Korea, and I'm glad they are here because it would be strange if South Korea wouldn't be here because they are influencing the world of music so much. Uh, and this is not quite K-pop. She's a singer-songwriter. It's a beautiful ballad, a slow burner that is doing so well in South Korea. And to be honest, I think probably in the rest of the world in the next months, this is by Yoonha, Event Horizon. From South Korea, a great track as well. Fernando, I'm getting a bit nervous now. And I think before you declare the four countries that are going to go to the final round, I think you should shed a bit of light on all the criteria you're taking into account when you're making this important decision. I think, you know, music influence, you know, I know which genres are doing well because it can't just be my personal music taste. Otherwise, there'll be Eurodance everywhere. Uh, so, you know, it needs to create an impact, originality as well. And it needs to be a great 
great pop tune, a great song that you can sing along to as well. So those are my criteria. So four countries are going to go to the final. What is the first country out of those four? The first one from Group A, the Netherlands, are going through with an excellent track by Man featuring Gold Band. I think they deserve it. What is the second song going to the final? Argentina, welcome to the big final. I think it's it's fun, it's young, energetic. So La Roaque is going there with Dos Besitos. Number three. You'll be happy with this one, Marcus. It's Germany. Excellent. What an interesting number one with Peter Fox featuring Inez. New genres. And I'm sure a lot of people will be surprised as well with this song from Germany. So now we have one song left and we have five countries left. We have Iran, Denmark, Morocco, Cameroon and South Korea. One of them is going to go to the finals and the other ones, well, they're not going to be winning this time around. They're in the semi-finals, so that's, that's good enough. But the last one is going to... South Korea. They deserve it. Jungha with Event Horizon. Amazing. Thank you very much for this, Fernando. And indeed, next week at the same time, we have the final of this World Cup countdown. Thank you very much. And that's all for this edition of The Briefing. It was produced by Tom Webb. Our researcher was Emily Sands and our studio manager was Nora Huell. The Briefing is back tomorrow at the same time. That's at 1300 in Zurich, midday here in London and 7am in Washington, D.C. I am Marcus Hippi. Goodbye and thanks for listening. <laughs>